Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Eureka, the show that gets under the skin of science, largely in a good way, as we invite a new expert every week to help us answer one of science's most interesting questions as decided by us. Isaac Asimov once said, the most exciting phrase in science is not Eureka, but that's funny. Uh, And respectfully, we think you can have a bit of both, Isaac, if you're listening, which you're not, because you're dead. I'm Rick Edwards. And I'm Dr. Michael Brooks. Was that disrespectful? It felt a bit, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just a statement of fact. I didn't kill the guy. No, no, you didn't. I'd love the guy to be alive. Yeah, no, wouldn't we all? I mean, he was a great guy. Great guy. But he's dead. He is dead. And there's no getting away from it. <laughs> uh, what, although if anyone had had their mind downloaded, you'd sort of, you'd quite like it to be him, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. What has inspired the show today? So, um, you remember in the dating apps episode where I said I'd been invited to a school reunion at Level 3 nightclub in Swindon? I mean, how could you forget that? <laughs> yeah, etched into my brain. So, so, that, so that whole school reunion thing made me sort of just think about, like, did I like school? Do I want to see those people again? Mm-hmm. And um, basically, I didn't really like school that much. So, I was, I was thinking yeah, I mean, about school. Either. You didn't like it either. No. But you, you and I did it quite differently. I think you were a naughty boy, weren't you? Yeah, I certainly, I certainly got uh, removed from a school. Oh, you actually did? Yeah, I was a terrible pupil. <laughs> and you just crammed for exams, presumably? Crammed. Yeah, I mean, actually, at school, I don't even know if I did that. Yeah, A-levels I crammed, because I had to. University crammed. Yeah, but at school, I mean, I just did nothing. Yeah. It was... It was uh, I mean... I was a disgrace. <laughs> I was quite a model student, but I didn't really enjoy any of it, apart from sports stuff. Mm. So, you know, playing stuff in the school teams, but that was good. And I liked that. Yeah. But everything else was just to get through. So I was thinking about, you know, what would happen if we'd done school differently? Like, what if we'd been put in a position where you didn't have to do lessons if you didn't want to? (laughs) Would that be a disaster for you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, I mean, the obvious point for me anyway is that it just felt like, actually, particularly university, looking back, but also school, just sort of weirdly at the wrong time for me. (laughs) I would love... yeah. To go back to like, I've spoken to you about it loads before. Yeah. I'd love to go back to uni now. Yeah. Like I, re- I, I love reading. Like I, I, re- I read loads of nonfiction books, which sort of is a bit like school because yeah. I really like learning. Yeah. But I like doing it on my own terms about the stuff that I want to know about. Yeah. So um, I, that was all right for me when I was at school. I did like learning stuff, yeah. and in my spare time, you know, at home, I would read books and I'd, I'd sort of read encyclopedias, and I'd, I'd just enjoy that whole process. So I think I could have maybe done a bit of sort of self education. Big hit with the ladies, were you reading the encyclopedia? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why I couldn't go back to the school reunion. You I've know, just, just finished a chapter about <laughs> F. <laughs> anyway, so the students are like heading back to school now, and the you know, the sort of, yeah. and they're in that that phase of like, I hate this. Mm-hmm. Is this is this worth it? So I thought we'd just ask, you know, really helpfully, is going to school a waste of time? <laughs> yeah, fine. The classroom and the school playground play significant roles in shaping our lives. Whether it's trying to remember your times tables, cramming in the last bits of revision before an important exam, making friends or even learning what you want to do with the rest of your life. But with alternative teaching methods becoming popular across the world and homeschooling having been mandatory during the lockdowns, could it be possible that school is now an outdated way to teach future generations? That's why this week we're asking, is going to school a waste of time? (laughs) 
So unless we've uh, done a massive break with the format of the show, <laughs> and you're like, I don't need an expert. You're yeah, just yeah, being right, super rebellious. That'd be so fitting. With, I don't it? need a teacher. Yeah. I don't need someone telling me what's going on. I assume we have got an expert. Yeah, we have got an expert. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got Guy Claxton, who's a professor of education. Uh, he's a cognitive scientist, uh, trained as an experimental psychologist at Oxford, and he applies science to our understanding of school and education generally and, and what education should be. Mm-hmm. Um, he's written a load of books about this kind of stuff. I've read some of them. Um, his re- most recent book is called The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back. Mm. And and basically, it's sort of a different starting point for for that conversation about education. I've actually got that book, and I've read. I haven't read all of it. I've read quite a lot of it. It's really interesting. So anyway, I thought a good starting point would be to ask Guy, "What is school? What is school? Are you a child? What sort of question is that?" School is a is a funny institution. It's built on uh, a number of foundations. Um, which have resulted in the sort of curious kind of organization and institution that we have today. It has its historical roots. School has its its historical roots in um, monasteries and seminaries, in the training of priests, which is why until very recently, and still in some schools, teachers wear gowns. It's a kind of memory of the monastic origins. Uh, um, The other historical origin much talked about is the Industrial Revolution and the uh, the assembly line. So they have, you have the idea that you can have sort of packages of children that are passed along the assembly line where a number of experts bolt on a bit of mathematics, a bit of English, a bit of French, a bit of geography, a bit of history. And then there's quality control called exams and they come out at the end as a viable product um, with these different aspects. So that's one foundation for education. Um, Another is just, I'm afraid to say, teacher and administrative convenience often the parceling of children together in in age-related cohorts. There's no scientific justification for lumping all 13-year-olds together. The research shows that in any group of 13-year-olds, some are kind of intellectually and mentally 16 and 17, and some are uh, 10 or 11 or 12. So it's a matter of administrative convenience. What's your next question, by the way? What is the sky? Um, <laughs> Were you the school bully by yeah. any chance? <laughs> Let's not talk about that. I think when I was younger, I probably had a few choice words to describe school, but I don't think I ever uh, described it as a place for administrative convenience. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, but I like, get it. I do like the idea of students listening to this and then going into school and just having a load of ammunition as to why they shouldn't bother anymore. Um, but basically, yeah, the, there's a point to this. So, so like, You've got this sort of, you know, he talked about the assembly line. Mm. And people talk about the factory model of schooling where, mm. you know, you've got kids sat in desks in rows. So it's, it's a bit like being, you know, in the factory. Effectively, you have your place, uh, you respond to the bell, you do everything on time. Punctuality is the, the most important thing. And you can see that that we were kind of set up in our schooling in a way that you could say it's, it's sort of really quite suited for producing factory workers who don't mm. necessarily have to think for themselves. But, I mean, school goes not that far back. You'd think it was, you know, we've always had schools, but we haven't always had schools. You know, once- no, presumably, for thousands of years, kids just sort of educated themselves, or, or well, not educated themselves, well, they didn't but it was to, like informal. They didn't history yeah. and geography. And, yeah. You know, especially when there were no textbooks and nobody really knew anything about, you know, even the neighbouring tribes. Nobody could read. Nobody could <laughs> read. So, so you've got, basically what happened is, you know, you've got the invention of agriculture when people started settling. And so you, you stop having these nomadic populations. And you, you basically, you know, first of all, you, you have children you know, as workers in the fields and that's, that's all very well. And, and uh, school or education was basically about getting them to just do what they're told all the time. So it wasn't really school as such. It was just a, you know, here's how to behave and this is what I need you to do uh, and in order to sort of carry out the will of, of the adults, if you like. And then um, the sort of idea of school as we know it, like this universal compulsory public education sort of started in Europe in the 16th century as a religious thing. Mm. So the idea was to tell children how to be and the schools were run by religious institutions. So the idea was that you basically bring up children, you tell them, 
you know, what they need to know in terms of, you know, the salvation of their souls or to be good, you know, good people, i.e., you know, you understand the tenets of, of your religion. And, um, and you had to be able to read the scriptures for yourself. So that was a Martin Luther thing in Germany. It was like, you know, we must teach them to read so that they can read the Bible for themselves and thus be saved sort of thing. And so Germany was kind of leading the development of schooling um, and had laws that kids go to school, but they were run by the churches. So how did people end up at university then? Because universities have been around for much longer than that, haven't but they? But they were different kinds of institutions. So, so, so you would have some people who would learn Latin in order to be able to copy or, or read the Bible, and they would do that, mm. and, and they would you know, become part of the universities, which are re- really, at the start, about learning more theology and understanding nature of God Mm. and stuff like that. So then um, mid 17th century, you get the first colony to mandate schooling, which is Massachusetts in the States. And and that was run by the Puritans. And the idea was you, you gather the children and you teach them how to become good Puritans. So you, you kind of fun, <laughs> and then the, the gist, guys, is you're not going to have any fun. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, school isn't meant to be fun, is it? School, school is certainly dead. not Puritan school. No, no, you can imagine. Is it break time? There's no break time. <laughs> but that's interesting, isn't it? Because because school is the first place you sort of turn. You learn that like you've got this distinction between work and play. It's yeah, like you can't yeah, enjoy yeah. this bit. That bit you can enjoy, but only for 15 minutes. And then the mm. bell rings and you go back to the other stuff. Mm. And this is sort of where the Industrial Revolution was so formative in, in mm. how we do school. Because it was like, you know, you, you basically train kids to be able to respond Pavlovian style to the ringing of a bell. And, and, and if they're late, they get hit and they, you know, you fall into line. You soon learn to sort of behave in the right way. And you sort of need to learn a few basics, like how to read and write is quite useful. And, and, and you, you basically learn, you teach them how to be moral and obedient and do all the right things. Mm. Uh, and we've just sort of evolved school from that. So obviously, you know, it became, mm. you know, you learn how to do Latin or how to you know, read Latin. And then, you know, we gradually evolved the syllabus to in, in, include, you know, you should learn about your history and and you know we'll we'll inculcate you with our the history that we choose, right? So, yeah. so all the way through education, it's been the adults choose what you're going to learn because the adults know best. Yeah. And so you learn about the Tudors and you learn, you know, so, so in history classes, a neighbor of mine is, is a, a retired history teacher is always moaning about how kids only ever learn about the Tudors and like, as if there's no other history. And it's kind of true, but it kind of fits the narrative of, of our country in some ways in terms of like, this is our, our greatest period. So we'll just teach them about that. Well, yeah, because I mean, fundamentally, we don't spend a lot of time on empire, do we? <laughs> Famously. <laughs> Not in any any kind of objective way, anyway. No. So, and then the final sort of piece of the puzzle is, like Guy said, the quality control. So, exams. And we have these education systems that basically are punctuated by high-stakes exams. And and educators have, have sort of gradually made that happen earlier and earlier in our educational history. And literally what you do at 16 or whether or not you cram for those exams, whether you've got any clue, that can like haunt you for the rest of your life. Yeah. literally, which doesn't seem like it's a good idea. Oh, I mean, it, it always seemed very obvious to me, as someone who massively benefited from the exam system, that it it doesn't feel fit for purpose. But it worked, is, it worked for you. It worked for me. Yeah. worked for me, but cramming is not a useful skill in, in life. It's slightly as for doing this podcast, actually, but uh, <laughs> so weirdly I've ended up, yeah. But on the whole, being able to cram is not, that's useful and no. it doesn't and I, and I would genuinely i would just you know i'd have it in my head for the as long as i need it to get it out would do well in my exams and then it would just go again yeah it's yeah. pointless it's yeah. a pointless exercise yeah. it doesn't doesn't really tell you anything whereas continuous assessment feels like just an obviously i i can see the flaws in continuous assessment but or the or the potential pitfalls but it just feels like a much fairer and more relevant way of uh, of assessing kids if you want to assess them at, at, at all but i suppose actually that the the real crux of this is that traditional schooling teaching kids to pass exams is not going to be right for every student no is it no definitely not and and it might have worked for you and it kind of worked for me but actually 
I think Guy, Guy would argue that it was bad for all of us. I think the way we've done education traditionally is a very mixed blessing. It suits some people that kind of academic or scholarly learning and the world needs a certain number of academics and scholars but it doesn't need a hundred percent of us to be we don't all need to be professors of philosophy or Nobel Prize winning scientists you know we need the world needs a rich variety of people it needs hairdressers and plumbers just as much as it needs professors of philosophy so school ought to be a place that everybody comes out of feeling empowered and respected for what their skills and their passions and their interests in life are going to be. Unfortunately, traditional education often has had the effect of turning people out who have n not a very useful set of dispositions, people who may feel helpless or hopeless or disabled or stupid when they come out of school. At the other end, there are some people who come out of, let's say, kind of swanky schools feeling arrogant and combative and entitled, you know, so that you know, their whole life is not about that you know they're really useless as learners their whole life revolves around a kind of combative sense of winning the argument by hook or by crook and you see this in some lawyers you see it in some politicians that it's like their whole mindset is how do I get away with winning the argument with scoring points rather than by saying this is a really tricky question I don't yet know the answer to that. Where are the experts? How could I learn more about this? It's really disappointing that you don't hear politicians saying that very often. So Guy is saying that politicians are bad learners. Effectively, what he's saying, yeah. yeah, he's saying that they are not the ones that come out with an appetite for learning new things. They were the ones generally that come out with a sense of I know everything I need to know. Now I'm going to run the world sort of thing. And I can win this argument. Yeah. Doesn't and the most really, important really thing is winning I'm, the argument. Yeah, it doesn't really matter whether I'm right or I understand this thing. I'm in a position where I can make it look like I do. Yeah. So those aren't really the kinds of people you want running the country. I mean, this is why mm. you have so many politicians who, who've argued both sides on, like Brexit, for instance. You know, you can just like trawl back a couple of years before the vote in the referendum and they were saying, oh, Brexit's a really bad idea. And then literally just in the run-up, they switched around and they're like, no, it's a really good idea. And it's expedient for them. And yeah, I was going to say that that's a, that's a sort of form of uh, extreme pragmatism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's not... Which I do understand. It's, it's, not, it's not ideal, but <laughs> I also couldn't quite see a way around that, in, in that specific case. I mean, anyway. you're, you're probably always going to get people who are like that. Mm. But the point is, I guess... The people who are good at learning and, and will chop and change and move, you know, with new evidence and, and sort of just continue learning throughout their careers are the ones that you actually want to be in charge of stuff, presumably. I mean, you know, like when you've got a pandemic coming along mm. and you think, oh, actually what we need is people who are able to look at what's going on and make judgments and, and understand you, them. You don't want to empower the scientists too. No, right? apparently not. No, 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 no. Don't empower the people who understand this stuff. That's the last thing you know. Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, you know, so Australia's national curriculum has a different approach to ours and they have, and they have obviously literacy, numeracy, information and communication technologies and stuff like that. But they also do a lot of critical and creative thinking classes mm. and personal and social capability and ethical understanding is part of their curriculum and uh, intercultural understanding as well. So, so you know, there's sort of a deliberate aim to like create more rounded, not just you know, learning facts, being able to speak a Latin phrase, you know, not just knowing you know dates in history and that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that's how our education system is because people have broadened it out a lot, and it's it's you know, it's probably different to when you and I were at school actually. Uh, but the point is, you know, you can design a way of sort of doing this kind of stuff that isn't just about you know. In, uh, when you're at this age, you will learn this thing. And when you're at that age, you will learn this thing. And then you'll get an exam on it. And that will be the mark of, of you having learned it and made progress. Yeah. And you well, can well, kind of change the way you do it. It's, it's almost like you, you, you want to sort of um, decouple the idea of learning from exams. 
Yeah. Like they don't need to be one and the same. Yeah. And they're not. Yeah. The but trouble they sort with exams, feel like it at school, don't they? Yeah, they definitely do. And the trouble with exams is it gives you something you can measure, doesn't it? So you can like measure progress or not progress and and move forward. Whereas we actually, love a metric, don't we? Though, don't yeah. we? I mean, that's yeah. what it comes down to. But I mean, so if you look at the science, there's like, even more fundamental changes. So, so a lot of people are recommending that we shouldn't even start like formal schooling until kids are like seven, because that's the point where the brain development has has progress to the point where they can start to actually learn things whereas before that the most important thing for them to do is to play together and learn social stuff and so all the way up to age seven if you allow kids to just play interact understand how other people want you to behave and and how you can behave around them and that kind of stuff uh there's a study from cambridge that analyzed data from 1700 kids collected when they were three and when they were seven and Basically, those who were better at playing together at age three, going on to age seven, had far fewer signs of poor mental health already. Mm. Whereas those who who weren't able to do it, you know, who had to get on with being in lessons and stuff like that, they just, you know, it was like you were setting them up to fail in terms of of mental health. So the ones who played more had lower hyperactivity. Parents and teachers reported fewer sort of emotional and conduct problems as well. So mm. so they were basically much less likely to get into fights and disagreements with other kids. They were just sort of better to be around and in a better position to actually then start school sort of learning without having all these kind of social anxieties and stuff. But you can't put an exact age on it. So it's not like age seven, obviously, mm. this happens. And you have to be able to sort of build in some flexibility because mm. some kids will mature we'll later and, and some earlier. earlier. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we lump them all together. Basically, every class has pretty much the same age. Yeah. And that's sort of failing at the first hurdle of education effectively, because their brains are, are doing different things yeah. at different ages. And some of them are ready to learn. Some of them actually, like, so like kids who are born prematurely can't deal so well at the same age with noise. And so being in a classroom mm. environment actually makes them sort of withdraw and or makes them unable to sort of cope. Uh, so they're overwhelmed by, by things. And, and, you know, you've got all this brain structure development going on. And you don't know what rate it's going on, but you kind of can interpret it. And I guess primary teachers are probably really good at sort of inferring, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, which yeah. kids are, are more advanced and which aren't. But the fact that, you know, you only have one age group together sort of creates a, its own problem straight away because you're you're having to do pretty much the same thing and the average thing with the average child, hoping that the others aren't too far ahead or too far behind. Mm. The Scandinavian countries start schooling much later, don't they? Yeah, and and they catch up, like there's no sort of there's, there's no, no sense that no. there's a there's a deficit there. No, no, not at all. And mm. and you can basically um, you can show that that you can accelerate learning once you get to a certain sort of brain structure formation that you know would have taken ages if you did it with a child that was too young or immature. You know that you can do much quicker once they're older. But the problem is, it's really hard to administratively. Yeah, put this yeah, I was going to say place. like the the actual practicalities of how you sort of make those decisions about when a specific child should be entering the sort of the learning arena is yeah it's an administrative nightmare exactly i want a place of administrative convenience <laughs> how many times <laughs> is, is there is there a way to become a better learner uh yeah so i mean that's that's a good question it's an important question so obviously i asked guy that I think that the ability to be a powerful learner is something that is very heavily influenced by your environment, by the messages, often the unconscious, the implicit messages of the environment, and by the opportunities that you're given. You know, if you're given opportunities to explore, you learn how to become an explorer. If you're given opportunities to read, you learn how to, you learn the pleasure of becoming a good reader. So learning power, the ability to be a powerful learner, is very different from the traditional idea of intelligence as some kind of fixed thing that you're born with 
and that it doesn't get much bigger and that it follows you around for the rest of your life and that it sets a ceiling on what you can be expected to achieve or certainly to achieve easily. That old-fashioned notion of intelligence is really discredited now. We know that if you take a slightly broader view of intelligence, intelligence is much more malleable. There may be some genetic predispositions that affect intelligence, but there's a big envelope of possibility around those genetic predispositions that make an enormous difference, that depend on your environment and your experience, that make an enormous difference as to how smart you end up being. I don't know the statistics on this, but Nobel Prize winning scientists, I think, often don't have particularly high IQs. I've met some of them and I can confirm some of them, honestly, you just think, what? You've got a Nobel Prize? What, thick eyes? Um, just oh, well, weirdos. <laughs> definitely not the smartest guy in the room sort of yeah. thing. I mean, I'm, I'm only really dealing with the physics ones. I mean, I can't mm. speak to, to the others, which is why I can say guy, because there's only two women ever, you know, basically won it. Amazing. Amazing stuff, really. Marie Curie? Marie Curie. Chemistry. Marie Curie. Oh, no, she won no, chemistry and physics, physics, didn't she? Yeah, and um, her daughter got chemistry. Ah, okay. Yeah, anyway, I can't remember the details, yeah. but my point is... Yes, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we can spend too much time on, on, on intelligence because it feels like it requires its own show that maybe we should do at some point. Um, yeah, but, the, uh, but yeah, there are a lot of traditional ideas around intelligence and learning that mm. really are, are wrong and have been disproved. So... Are you, are you about to... I, I feel there's a load of science coming here, <laughs> which I like, but maybe we take a break. Okay. So when we get back, we'll get into the disproven science of having different learning styles, uh, how you can be better learners, and then our question, is going to school a waste of time? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. Now, where were we? I think you're about to uh, science me. Well, I'm, I just want to tell you that like studies have shown that the, there's a lot of myths around education and how it works and how it shouldn't work. The biggest one is probably learning styles. So mm. I remember actually when my 
kids were at school, them starting to talk about, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a visual learner, therefore I can only w- learn things through watching YouTube videos or something yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did sort of roll my eyes slightly, but um, I didn't <laughs> know the science and stuff. But, but basically, if you review the scientific literature on learning styles, there's just no support for the idea that like some some kids learn this way some students learn a different way and you've got to change the way you teach for that one mm. and, and and not for that one so so there's uh, there's a, a really good study where it's like something like more than 400 students completed this uh, evaluation on uh, whether they were visual auditory reading and writing or kinesthetic learners mm-hmm. uh, and they sort of self-reported about what they thought they were mm-hmm. and um, and then they were given tasks and researchers tracked their performance and how they approached these tasks and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and basically um, first of all the study showed that most students will lo- will use multiple learning styles mm-hmm. uh, and sort of what you'd expect, yeah, yeah, because even though they might say, "Oh, I'm this, I'm that," they actually sort of you know use the whole the whole lot, uh, and and there was no particular styles or combination of styles that resulted in better outcomes in terms of their learning, and then um, even the ones that sort of self-reported, "I have this particular style," seventy percent of those actually failed to use that style like exclusively so they, so they weren't like like doing that thing like that they thought in their heads that they were this kind of mm-hmm. learner but actually they weren't at all and then because uh, they've been told that they were do you think well, they I, just sort I of think developed they, an idea i think of... they probably have been told or it have been suggested yeah, to them yeah. it's really easy isn't it to say to a child in a class oh you know you're struggling a bit but let's maybe you'll learn better this way yeah. if we do it and then all of a sudden you you're, can... a, you're a pictures guy really. yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, and, and so um, in that study, a third or almost a third of those did choose styles that were associated with their own sort of self-reported mm. learning style. Did it pay off? Oh, uh, I'm going to say no. No. No, no, it did not. In fact, they, they were basically no better than any other. So, so the whole learning styles thing just has to go. It's just not a thing okay. at all. So, so we'll forget that. Um, That's good. That gives you a bit simpler, at least. Yeah, yeah. And then genetics. So, I mean, Guy mentioned that sort of genetics can play a role. And, of course, in broad terms, as we both know, it can. There is some sort of uh, link between genetics and some definitions of intelligence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but basically, there, there was a study of 5,000 teenagers uh, in England and Wales, this was. Uh, and, and and if you looked at them, uh, so that they were attending selective schools and so fee-paying private schools, state-funded grammar schools, and, and then there was all the others. Mm-hmm. And there was, first of all, no advantage to basically being at one of those schools if you factor out the fact that those schools have selected for the brightest kids anyway. So you have to, you have to factor that out. Uh, so, 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 so the so school itself is not, is, is not improving you. value. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and then you, uh, and obviously the socioeconomic factors and everything else, mm. but basically those pupils at selective schools would have done equally well because they do do better, but they would have done just as well at non-selective schools. Yeah. And, and the, People were looking for the sort of genetic thing that there must be some kind of genetic thing about this, and they can't. Nobody's ever found a good correlation between you know the genetic sort of makeup of of kids and their achievements at school. Mm. So everything is just basically a socio economic kind of construct as to how you know genetics might help you. Well, genetics will help you if if you kind of measure it in a certain way. But mm. but once you you say, you know, does genetics help your intelligence or help your achievement in learning? No, it doesn't at all. Um which actually is quite a it's quite an optimistic finding. Yeah, I like I, I, it. Yeah. I, I I like that. Yeah. Because I've I've always hated this idea that somehow you know, some people are just you know, luck of the draw. You end up genetically, you you're going to be limited. Yeah, and that that feels quite sort of depressing. Whereas what we're saying really is, it's much more malleable than that, and it's the sort of it's the nurture. Yeah, that is that is the yeah. key. It's the, the environment that's going to make the real difference. The socioeconomic conditions. I mean, I mean, obviously, it doesn't really help because people's socioeconomic conditions are so different. But the fact that if you could somehow level that stuff, yeah. You might be in a position where everyone does have a kind of an equal chance. Yeah, like some Scandinavian countries, it's illegal to have private schools, isn't it? Mm. 
you know, you're just not allowed to do that. And, and that goes a long way to helping everyone, Yeah, I think. Um, one, there is a study... Well, grammar schools, uh, I mean, I know that... You went to a grammar school, didn't you? Yeah, I did. But they, uh, intuitively, I think partly because I went to a grammar school, I think, oh yeah, they're, they're, they're good. But then you read about grammar schools, and you're like, oh no, this isn't, this isn't helping in the way that, yeah, you, you sort of want to believe that it is. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of exacerbates I think it's advice. siphoning a few people upwards while leaving the rest even more stranded isn't yeah, it yeah pretty much and 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 essentially it's just a load of people who are it tends to be a lot of people who are advantaged already anyway who are getting into those grammar schools yeah I was a real sort of grammar school advocate until I actually bothered to read anything about it <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like oh I'll tell you what might help electric shocks so I mean only in mice, unfortunately. Okay. So far. Mm-hmm. So we haven't done the human studies on mm-hmm. this. But there was a, a paper published in Nature last year that basically, I mean, it's quite complicated. I didn't really get my head around it. But they do some cognitive control training, which uses electric shock avoidance to teach mice to think better and to l- be better learners. And what they found was that the, the the brain, the various signals that allow the mice to avoid the electric shocks, they pay attention mm. to these signals. Yeah, yeah. Um, it predisposes the brain to then be better at learning something that comes immediately after it. So it sort of enhances the input. It's hard to bring a cane back. I mean, is that what we're saying? I mean, the electric in, shocks for the mice. Bit cane-y. I know. I'm not, I didn't really want uh, to report amazing. that, but no. I felt, you know, for balance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. A bit of pain, obviously. Um, I'll tell you what does work. I mean, this is, I mean, this is really basic stuff, right? and and in some ways, education research is quite basic stuff hmm. because the, you know, the the insights that you get are quite sort of straightforward. And then nobody wants to implement them for political reasons. But um, so if you do, when you're learning and, and trying to work out how best to learn as a student, the basic best thing is self-testing and spreading out your study sessions. So you do a bit here and there, you test yourself and, and you, you, know, you basically study quite hard, which is pretty much what I did, I would say. Mm. Um, but if you get a group of students to underline stuff and reread it, which is what I think a lot of kids do when they're studying by themselves. They think, I'll just read it. Oh, that bit's important. I'll underline it. And they've done that for two hours and they think they've done a really good session. Apparently it does nothing. Mm. It just doesn't go in like that at mm. all. Uh, so it's really ineffective, really time consuming. And and you know that's kind of all we've got in a sense. The studying isn't easy. It's not straightforward. There's no magic bullet for it. You just have to... Um, work really hard but do the right things so so you know be be testing yourself and constantly sort of you know reinforcing things because if you cram for an exam you'll you might well pass it but you'll you'll have forgotten everything in that exam you know very shortly afterwards yeah so it's not good in the long term if you're if you think you're learning something worthwhile then you know learn it for the long term but you could argue that like you know Dates in Tudor history, you you can live without them anyway. We've got Google. I think, I think they're pretty irrelevant now. So we've got quite a lot of stuff wrong about learning. Then are there any tips about how we can improve our, I guess, like our attitudes towards learning? Yeah. So um, you have to see yourself as a work in progress. So so you mustn't sort of think, oh, this is it. I'm set in stone. Hmm. You, I, mean, I think it's called a growth mindset, isn't yeah, it? I think it is, we've yeah. come across it before. Yeah, um, yeah. So so here's what Guy had to say about that. We know from a whole body of research by a very famous researcher called Carol Dweck that if you talk to children, if you lead children to believe that their intelligence is a fixed commodity, if you say you're a bright child or you're an average child or you, you got a good mark because you're able, because you're gifted or talented, that's not a good idea to feed into kids' minds because it makes them less resilient in the face of failure or difficulty. It makes them attached. They become attached, dependent upon being successful. So it's possible, and we know that some parents, quite by mistake, quite inadvertently, do this, as some teachers do this, the way they praise their kids for being able, for having high levels of ability, 
is actually undermining their ability to be powerful learners because they tend to become addicted to that praise and therefore more averse to taking on challenges where they don't already know that they can look good at it, right? So even some four-year-olds will be quite risk-averse when it comes to learning. They say, oh no, I don't do things like that or I don't know how to do that or I can't do that. Whereas, but, but I can do this, let me show you how smart I am. And they'll go off and do something that they've been praised for, that they can be applauded for. Obviously, the younger we start, the more parents understand this, the more primary teachers understand this, the more playgroup leaders understand this, the better. So don't make sort of fixed claims about what yeah, the because, child is because achieving. Ch- children then create their identities around yeah. those things and other things which they haven't been praised for mm. they just don't even you know want to to go near i guess is, is what guy is saying so i mean it's a bit like you know how you always respond really well if somebody says that's a good question yeah obviously yeah. there's somebody in your past who told you you're really good at asking questions yeah. rick yeah 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 and in <laughs> fairness i have made a career out of it um and i suppose also you can see that thing of uh you know you go to like a very high achieving sort of academic grammar school and you can just sort of get burnt out and you just feel really anxious and you're yeah, constantly yeah. trying to achieve and then if you make a mistake it freaks you out and actually that doesn't help you learn or improve it's just sort of yeah it's all a bit counterproductive yeah, I mean, I think, and it is—it's exactly what he, what he's saying about growth, or you were saying about growth mindset. Just thinking everything's fluid, everything's like every, still up everything, for grabs. Everything's exactly everything's yeah. up for grabs. Being wrong about something is not a problem because you can correct yeah. yourself, which we know as learn, adults, don't which we? we? Well, yeah, we do. do we? But I think that you know, some people aren't aren't great at that. I think I've got much better at it actually. Like I, I genuinely used to sort of pride myself on being right about everything. Um, and I, I know you. So I, know, I know, I know you do. But now <laughs> I think when I, I sort of see it as a really good thing, if I'm wrong about something and I've learned something new, I'm like, well, that's an improvement. Like this yeah, is good. Yeah. Like, we're we're getting somewhere. I absolutely love um, learning new stuff. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, that's why we do this podcast. Point. actually don't care about you, the audience at all. No, sorry, sorry, but it's true. Like I just, I, I love chatting about this stuff. And if you ever, I'm sure I must have bored you with this before. Have you come across the? Uh, the, the rationalists as a sort of group, like yeah. the, the people of, you know, rational thinkers. Yeah. Um, and um, one of the the prominent ones, this lady called Julia Galef, who I really like, wrote a book called The Scout Mindset. And she just makes this really simple analogy. And, and it's sort of, it's a little bit like fixed mindset, growth mindset. But hers is, um, you want to have a scout mindset and not a soldier mindset. She said most people have a sort of soldier mindset where effectively you defend the thing that you believe in. Right, yeah. Like you ju- and, and, you, yeah. and you just fight to, de- fight to defend it and, and that's what you're going to do. You've got your territory, what you believe, and you, and you just like, yeah, whatever happens, yeah. you're, um, you're sort of batting down the hatches. Yeah. What you want, though, is a sort of, is to be more like a scout who's working for the army who... You're, all you're trying to do is go out and and improve the map of what's going on, and to then to then report back. And actually, it's really unhelpful if you if you think that there is a river, you know, sort of a hundred meters uh, west, and you think that the the opposite uh, the 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 opponent is on the other side of the river, and that's what you that's what you think is is happening. That's what everyone thinks is happening. Yeah. And you go down to the river, and actually, they're on the other side already. It's quite important that you update the map and say, oh, actually, so you go back and go, sorry, I was wrong about that. Actually, they're actually on this side. So yeah. we need to change what we're what we're thinking. And that's the sort of scout mindset where you, you just like constantly updating and refining your map of the world, really, yeah. and, and your and your beliefs. Not just going out there and seeing that it's different and just coming back and going, No, it's it's what we thought. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're they're yeah. on the no, no, no need to worry. It's all fine. They're, it's they're all on fine. the you're, other you're side. Right, all plenty of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, effectively, that's kind of what you want a school environment to be like, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not sure that most schools are set up for that. I don't think I, I and that's no. not a criticism of the schools as much as it is of the system of evaluation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so like if you have to get your pupils through a GCSE, 
you can't just have them sort of setting off and doing what they want to do and going out and exploring this because they're really interested in it. No. And or, or you can't spend endless hours debating, you know, the, the merits or, or otherwise of nuclear power. You know, you know, when you I mean, that's literally I remember this from my physics class when um, when I was like 15, 16 and the, the teacher, Mr. Sumner, he's like, OK, let's you know, we're learning something about nuclear reactions and fission reactions. And he said, like, you know, what do you think about nuclear power? Are there issues with using this stuff? And we ended up having this long debate about it. And for me, I remember that was the first time I found physics interesting. It was mm. like, oh, OK, this this kind of stuff sort of has all these ramifications. And I was able to explore them with him. And um, in fact, I dedicated my first book to him, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense. And, ah, and great book. Gotta I, say, I tracked him book. down. I tracked him down. And uh, he said, yeah, just, and I said, oh, you know, the way you talk just made me so interested in science. Like, you know, and that's where this comes from. That's why I dedicated the book to you. And uh, I was on the phone to him and he said, yeah, I could hear the sort of hesitation in his voice. And he said, yeah, just after your cohort, they brought in like the curriculum where I couldn't do any of that. And um, I was just literally having to teach to get people Cloud through the through. exam. Mm. So I quit. Oh, <laughs> it was <God>. just like... <laughs> <laughs> it was just like I couldn't I couldn't I didn't want to teach like that I, uh, I, and and so that's the sort of issue you have it's not that you've got badly motivated teachers or anything else it's just you've got a system in place into, yeah, yeah yeah that isn't necessarily conducive and and you know you get all kinds of problems coming out of that but there are other models so there's um there's a thing called the Sudbury Valley School in Massachusetts which basically sort of has been running for a few decades and and kids who go there and it has to be kids with means because you have to pay to go there mm -hmm. uh, but you educate yourself and you sort of decide what you want to learn and whether you want to learn it or not or whether today you just want to go and climb trees and and you'd think this would be terrible and we have the Summerhill school here in Suffolk I think it was right. but sort of, I had the same sort of model and you'd think it would be terrible you know and eventually kids find things that they want to do and they want to learn about so they go off and 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 find ways to learn and they teach kids from other age groups so you might go and find somebody who knows something about this and 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 you work together on it and it just becomes this sort of very organic way of educating mm. and you think oh but you know you can't survive in life like that surely but actually the sort of retrospectives that have gone back to the kids who've gone through this they find um that they are adults who a loads of them report just really being comfortable with themselves and they really like themselves and they don't have anxieties and stuff and they've gone through life sort of feeling quite sort of chilled and and enjoying everything. Mm -hmm. And when they did hit like tertiary education at 18 or whatever, they found it really easy to seamlessly sort of integrate and just pick up. And they already had like skills for learning. So they could just sort of pick things up really fast, educate themselves to get them on track for, for doing their degrees or whatever, and go on to have really quite productive lives. Because they'd had such a sort of flexible learning experience. Yeah. So and it's, just... not, it's not that they didn't learn anything. They just learned the things that they were interested in and they learned how to learn and they learned how to talk to adults about the thing they were interested in so they could access the right kind of materials. So a different way of doing schools does sort of work. Very difficult could, to could sell. You, yeah, could you do that at scale? I wonder, because it's interesting that that's well, I, fee, fee yeah. paying because it feels like quite a privileged well, sort it, of approach. It's sort of a choice, it? isn't it? Where yeah. you, you can only make that choice if you've got means mm. effectively. So um, it, yeah. it's hard to see how you would do that at scale. Mm. And I think people like Professor Guy and others are sort of trying to work out how you bring some of that, that learning to learn, that love of learning into sort of the schools that we do have. But they're very rigid boxes. They're very, you know, the, the, the way the education system is now is very hard, certainly in the UK, to, to bring change on. And parents won't vote for it effectively because they don't want their kids to be the experiments that, you know, that fail. Well, you wouldn't. So it goes down the generations. It's just like, you, yeah. you always think, well, I'm all right. So therefore, you know, what I went through was probably all right. And, and, you know, it's fine. We'll, you know, we'll just stick with this because what we don't want to do is, is start embarking on a new system. And it turns out it's not a very good one. Yeah. So you never get change because it's, it feels too high stakes and politicians have made it harder and harder, haven't they? Cause they've effectively yeah. retrenched to, you know, the, sort of 1950s and 1960s education system has been sort of venerated and held up as the example of this is what we want to get to you know it's, it's yeah, extraordinary it's just, yeah it's 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 so it's so backward looking we've produced school once and it hasn't it just hasn't evolved that far no and it's the world has of, changed massively yeah, yeah. it sort of feels like well. it's stuck 
in a in a in a bygone era in yeah. a way. And we know that there are better ways of doing maybe you know, maybe we understand better ways of doing the small bits mm. here and there. But you know, there's the got to be a lot mm. a lot we can do with the big picture. Okay, so is going to school a waste of time? What are you saying? It's not a waste of time, but it's not as productive a use of time as it could and should be. Okay, let's see what Professor Guy said. In an ideal world, if you if you ask me the question in, in abstract, is going to school a waste of time? I think particularly for some older children, like from the age of about 14 years onwards, it may well be, it may well be that what they're learning in school and the way they're treated in school is not meeting their needs and is not fitting them for an adult life. There's some very interesting research that shows that 14-year-olds, many of whom are disaffected with school, are often thought to be like they may lack ability or they may be not very bright or they may be thought that they're much more suited for a vocational educational route rather than, you know, they're good with their hands but not with their brains kind of thing. But actually what this research shows is the disaffection of many 14-year-olds reflects not their intelligence or what they're interested in. It reflects an impatience to take on the rights and responsibilities of adulthood. They can't wait to get a job to be paid, to be held to account, to be treated like an adult. And it's that that fuels their discontent at school. Nothing to do with their interests or their intelligence. And I think that's a very, very important finding because lots of kids are then confined to stay on at school, just champing at the bit because they want to be, you know, they feel ready and who's to say they're not to take on at least some of the responsibilities of adulthood. And they, whilst they're continually required to behave like children. Yeah, it's definitely not working for everyone, that's for sure. Mm. But it's, it's kind of designed for the average kid. But then then just the... It comes back to the administrative convenience. <laughs> yes, not just it? convenience, yeah, yeah. but like, how on earth do you structure a system where you're trying to do sort of personalised education for every kid, which is the... That is the... That's the best possible approach, isn't yeah. it? You, you just tailor it's to the kid and you work with the kid to try and work out what's going to work best for them. Yeah. But I mean, how, how could you do that? In a, and in also, a, in a city. Like, yeah. 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 And, and we're always, again, you sort of come back to metrics, you come back to, it's all going to come down to measurements where you're like, is this like, so actually this seven year old, uh, is sort of at the level of a 10-year-old, so it should be up there. But how am yeah. I measuring that? Uh, this seven-year-old is actually a bit behind, but that's okay. You can just hang out with the younger kids. And it's like, it all sort of sounds good, but how how do you do it? I've no idea. Yeah. Guy, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> you must have thought about this. Eureka is a stack production presented by Dr. Michael Brooks and Rick Edwards. The production team is Temi Adebayo, Katie Baxter, Luke Moore and Charlie Morgan. Sound designed by Katie Baxter. Special thanks to today's expert, Professor Guy Claxton. Please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. It does make a massive difference. We also really love hearing from you guys. So if you have any burning questions you want us to answer, drop us an email at eureka at stack.london or you can find us, as always, on Twitter at EurekaPod. Thanks. Eureka is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.